You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Jack Lewin, Chief Executive Officer of the American College of Cardiology. In the coming year, the medical community will no doubt face new challenges as well as opportunities in the wake of health reform. Where does cardiology fit in, and how can physicians prepare for the changes ahead? Our guest is Dr. Ralph Brindis, Senior Advisor for Cardiovascular Disease for Northern California Kaiser Permanente, Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and newly installed President of the American College of Cardiology. Welcome, Dr. Brindis. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jack. Ralph, it's really a nice time for us to talk about health reform and the issues. We had a historic passage of a health reform bill. It's major reform. What does it mean for cardiologists as well as others in the greater medical community? You know, the nation uh, really passed incredibly monumental legislation that I believe is setting our great nation on a new course for healthcare delivery. You know, this legislation is going to really take on and expand headway into expanding coverage for so many more of our patients. You know, 30 million does so through Medicaid qualifications extensions, increasing the age limit for young adults, eliminating pre-existing conditions and exclusions for health insurance. In terms of cardiologists, it's including congenital heart futures acts. It's looking at issues near and dear to cardiologists in terms of chronic disease management, prevention, and wellness. The college is actually very excited that Congress has actually included some needed funding for innovative Medicare and Medicaid pilot programs that actually could improve care coordination for cardiovascular patients. That's the CMS Innovation Center piece, right, that's in there at $10 billion you're talking about? Absolutely. When you think about what the college has done in terms of trying to offer our membership what we would call tools but not rules in terms of issues related to appropriate use criteria, our clinical practice guidelines, embedded decision support tools, you know, care integration. These fit very nicely into the direction I believe that the healthcare system needs to go where we start thinking about how we can reward for quality and not just uh, quantity. When you think about some of the deficiencies in healthcare reform, uh, the bill really doesn't address adequately financial payment reform, and I think going forward they need to do that. I think other concerns that us cardiologists and all physicians have to have is the provision creating this independent payment advisory board concept. Concern areas, in other words. Yes. I mean, here's a concept where we think is incredibly misguided, where they uh, are going to focus totally on physician payment aspects, but not look at other aspects of care, you know, whether it be hospital or industry or drug or whatever. It's sort of picking on the docs. In fact, I I have to say one of my concerns, and I think one of the college's directions, is to make sure that the physician-patient relationship going forward in our important efforts of healthcare reform, that does not get marginalized and pushed on the side of the road. What else is lacking in this legislation? I know the doctors are concerned about all the other constituencies sort of negotiated themselves out of the cost containment part of the independent payment board, but what what else is of concern to cardiologists? Well, as you know, we just sort of implied, without having good payment reform that rewards uh, quality improvement in outcomes, this is uh, clearly a direction that it needs to take. And then 
Jack, as you well know, it did not address or repeal the SGR, the so-called uh, sustainable growth rate formula that's actually used to calculate Medicare physician payments. So this is something that, unfortunately, all physicians have had to spend a lot of time lobbying year after year after year to get Congress to fix this. And uh, it looks like it's just at the present time, Jack, if I'm not mistaken, it's just being kicked down the road for another, you know, six months or something. I call that the SGR (laughs) because the thing is apparently we're going to be dragging that like a dead albatross around forever. What about tort reform? Uh, You know, a lot of our members have thought we were going to get something there. The issue of tort reform is, again, a substantial one. I always find it interesting how, depending on which silo you are in, how much or how little people think that uh, medical liability leads to increased costs. The government thinks it's actually quite little. I would say that based on watching my physician's practice and their concerns related to medical uh, liability, there are a lot of hidden costs in defensive testing that uh, increases our health care bill. This is another area that needs to be addressed by Congress. They have not taken on medical liability reforms that reduce legal and defensive medicine costs. It's interesting how different states have handled it. I'll speak for California, which has done pretty well with its microcaps and trying to decrease costs, yet our own senators and our own congressmen, Democratic ones, do not support this on a national level, even appreciating how well it does in in California. Yeah, the trial bar is pretty effective in their lobbying. I mean, they've got a grip on everybody. Even, look, eight years of Republican leadership in Congress and all the talk about tort reform, they did nothing. I think the government is underestimating the importance of tort reform here. Oh, yes. Is health reform... This whole historic March passage of the bills, is this case closed then, or do you think that further reform discussions are going to happen in the coming years? What do you see happening in the next three years before this gets implemented? Well, I wish I had that crystal ball. I'm just proud of the Obama administration and Congress in passing this. It's sort of like they did the pole vault and got us over the 10-foot fence. I'm a little concerned about where the pole vault lands us. But, uh, you know, you got to make that first giant step before you can then uh, straighten out all the other issues related that you and I have already started talking about. I, clearly payment reform and tort reform, and uh, maybe we can influence this concept, the Independent Payment Advisory Board. We can make some inroads here. I think we got three years of all kinds of discussions that will be going on before we really get this resolved. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Lewin. Our guest is Dr. Ralph Brindis, Senior Advisor for Cardiovascular Disease for Northern California Kaiser Permanente, Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the newly installed President of the American College of Cardiology. We're discussing what to expect in the year ahead for cardiology. Well, Ralph, you started off talking a bit about the positives for quality. Can you talk more about what the college is doing with registries and how registries might help measure success and reduce healthcare disparities and even healthcare costs in the coming years? The college has to be quite proud about what we've accomplished with the registries. And, and I know that with those registries going forward with healthcare reform, we'll be able to ensure appropriate use of imaging. We'll be able to promote adherence to clinical guidelines. We'll be able to improve care coordination through these registries. And I'm hopeful with some of our projects, such as the hospital home project, we'll be able to reduce hospital admissions, decreasing costs, and improving patient care. And importantly, deal with issues related to racial and geographic disparities in care. And I'm hoping that carefully 
crafted partnerships with multiple healthcare stakeholders will be able to do it. In terms of the registries, you know, Jack, as you well know, we now have six registries, five that are hospital-based, and now our Pinnacle Registry, which is an ambulatory care registry in place. And these registries now have over 11 million patient records. We're, we're in well over 2,400 hospitals. And these registries have helped so much in terms of improving care at the local hospital level. They've been able to do post-market device surveillance. We've been able to identify now its use for even doing issues related to comparative effectiveness research for the country. When the registries have identified issues related to, as mentioned earlier, racial and socioeconomic disparities, and bringing this back to the hospitals, to our treating physicians, is only going to improve care. You know, the fact that this is clinical data, too, and it's not, I mean, because everybody else is using claims data, payment data, Whereas the college's activities with the National Cardiovascular Data Registry, or NCDR, is the clinical data that everybody's looking for. And here it is out there in more than half of the nation's hospitals measuring outcomes in cardiovascular care. What an amazing secret that doesn't seem to be out in the public or doesn't seem like Congress understands or knows this. Tremendous investment and opportunity in health reform coming up. What about appropriate uses, too, Ralph? Can you talk about appropriate use criteria a bit? I'd be honored to. And again, I just want to say that, you know, American College of Cardiology and the profession of our, and our fellows of American College of Cardiologists, you know, should be quite proud about our commitment for quality that of uh, putting all this investment of resources and money on our own so that we can actually have true clinical data to be able to improve care and help our nation's cardiovascular patients. Now, appropriate use criteria is a very important issue. The government actually says that maybe 40% of all healthcare expenses are wasted, whether it be redundant testing or other things related to testing. But also, there is a substantial portion of testing and procedures that may be of no value. We as a profession have decided to help our colleagues and help uh, stakeholders in identifying where we can have opportunities of improvement so that we would order tests for the right patient at the right time for the right indication. So we've created now at least six documents, mostly focusing on imaging, but also focusing on coronary revascularization to help guide physicians when we should be ordering tests. A lot of times this revolves around uh, issues of frequency of testing, frequency of echoes or nuclear tests or whatever. There's been now a lot of attention about radiation exposure to patients. And so the appropriate use criteria documents also can help protect our patients in terms of avoiding inappropriate or unneeded radiation. Well, so as the patient approaches the cath lab these days, not only can you, you know, we can be talking about what images are appropriate, but now it appears that the American College of Cardiology's appropriate use criteria can be applied through the NCDR, the registries, to actually help predict, right, whether a patient needs an angioplasty or a bypass surgery or optimal medical therapy for coronary artery disease. That's pretty amazing. Very exciting. I think the days of the omnipotent physician are gone, and I think that we are finding ourselves increasingly bonding with our patients and families and making care more patient-centric. What is exciting, our risk adjustment models related to PCI mortality has been turned into a patient-centric tool so that actually getting consent forms where it is focused directly on the patient, their age, their clinical descriptors, their comorbidities, so you can tell the patient and the family what the benefits of the procedure are, what the risks of the procedure are, so that it can be a truly informed patient decision, hopefully upstream before they even go to the cath lab. 
That's really amazing. You know, the ACC is more than just a basketball league now. Uh, no. Congratulations on this work. You know, the college, it's amazing, has done this with its own resources and with partners, but there's been no, basically no dollars from the insurance industry or from the federal government thus far to help move all this incredible quality of care measurement along. And uh, maybe in this next decade with health reform, we're going to see the secondary beneficiaries. The patients are the first beneficiary of this quality of care. But maybe now the others who benefit, the payers, Medicare, Medicaid, and the insurance industry will help uh, leverage this and take it further. Tremendous work, and uh, we're very, very impressed. I would like to just kind of focus the last bit of this interview, Ralph, on what you plan to do as president of ACC this year. You've got a year to take us to the next level. What is it that you know you want to get done during your year as the legacy of President Ralph Brindis? Well, the ACC, of course, is a big ship that hopefully I'll just keep directing in the manner that it is doing. I have taken on in my theme of the year professionalism for the physician, which I think is uh, perfect, particularly in the fact that cardiologists are feeling beat up a little bit and marginalized, as we talked earlier in the day. Professionalism uh, really is going to meet in my mind, advancement of cardiovascular knowledge, demonstration of value of our specialty in healthcare improvements, active engagement of our professionals throughout our college activities, and also inclusiveness in all that we do. So we're going to help the physician in terms of dealing with issues we didn't talk about today, but the payment issues related to practice expenses, issues of bundling and that are occurring to decreasing uh, physicians' incomes and their viability. But we're also going to do this, as mentioned, in advancing our quality tools, developing our registries, the Pinnacle Ambulatory Service, our lifelong learning portfolios and systems for our docs, our professional website, CardioSource, continue work and maturation of our patient website, CardioSmart. I'm very excited about the college developing health IT decision support tools, actually embedding the appropriate use criteria documents that docs can use upstream in terms of ordering. And we can't just do this with cardiologists. We need internists and nurse practitioners to be able to use this. We're going to be pushing and encouraging our physicians to engage in lifelong learning linked to performance. We need to accelerate or expand and development all of our standards and tools, and we will be doing this as we focus on uh, patient value and partnering. That's exciting stuff. We've been talking today to Dr. Ralph Brindis, president of the American College of Cardiology, about the ACC and the future of cardiology. Thank you, Dr. Brindis, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jack. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.